good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, around the nation, around the world. You are listening to The Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM, www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com. That's www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com. We're also streaming live on WCET 101.7 FM, Columbia Talk in Columbia, South Carolina. And with that, uh, Chip, are you there, my friend? Oh, I sure am, Timmy, and I'm unmuted, right? Yeah. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Sometimes I mute the mic and it doesn't last uh, nearly long enough, especially depending on who you ask. But with that said, yes, we welcome you all to Supernatural Realm right here with the great Tim Roxbury and his ever-loving sidekick, Chip Reichenthal. Hey, that's me. And we have a phenomenal guest for you all today. Beloved listeners, and I mean phenomenal. Yeah. And here with today, our honored guest. Well, you know, because he's our, our buddy, uh, we'd, we'd love to say Matt Swain is here. But when he's not our buddy, we give we refer to him <laughs> under his author name, Matthew L. Swain. And uh a renowned paranormalist and author both, renowned at both, excelling at both, and fantastic books from our friend Matt Swain, or again, when he's not our friend, our, his author name, Matthew L. Swain, S-W-A-Y-N-E, in case you want to start looking those books up already. I think you can find them at least on Amazon. But he's got books like Haunted Rock and Roll, Ghostly Tales of Musical Legends, More Haunted Rock and Roll, More Tales of Guitar Hero and Ghost Rock Star Curses and Musical Mysteries, Ghosts of Country Music, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters. I mean, right there is at least two hours. <laughs> Easy. And uh, uh, we also want to uh, tread on the phenomenon which is now his book, Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. But the most beautifully strange synchronicity of all is uh, that we have the honor of hanging out with our friend Matt Swain today here on Supernatural Realm with the great Tim Roxbury. I'm going to turn it over to the great Tim Roxbury to welcome our guest, Matt Swain, uh, or when, you know, his author name, Matthew L. Swain. Timmy, take it away, brother. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks a lot. And usually I'm Matthew when I'm in trouble. That's oh, usually okay. the way it works. <laughs> yeah, I'm, But it's I'm, great to be on the show. Yeah, I'm Charles when I'm in trouble. That's my wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what how do they, they call you when you're in trouble, Tim? Um, I don't know. They just say Timmy, you know. Actually, I guess if somebody referred to me as I don't know, especially if they were like I don't married to me or my mother or something, that would be telling in itself. But yeah, I get usually it's, it was it was like you know get up here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Well, you must come here. I want to talk to you there. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually, how it went with me. Yeah. But. Uh, but uh, We've already learned something new and extraordinarily important. And what names we are <laughs> when we're in trouble. That's so, right. That's a good place to start. You can't hear that on any other radio station anywhere in the free world. Put it right here. Yeah. 
Yeah. So how did everything start for you, Matt? Well, I I like to say that uh, I was I was born to write this stuff because I was born on Halloween. So oh, nice. yeah, that's yeah. that's that, very cool. That, yeah. That really kicked it off for me. And, and, and you know, seriously, uh, having that birthday, I was always interested in the supernatural. And I was into, you know, horror movies and nice. uh, sci- science fiction. And so I just never knew a time in my life when I wasn't fascinated with the supernatural. And so what had happened to me, it was, but I, I never ever in my life thought, well, I I'll write books about the supernatural that mm-hmm. just never occurred to me. But what happened was, um, I eventually became a, after a career in radio for maybe about five or six years in radio, I guess that's not a career, but about as close sure as I it came is. to it. Uh, it's probably, probably long for, uh, compared to a lot of the folks I, I, uh, was on the air with, yeah. but, uh, I, I became a newspaper reporter for, um, a local, my hometown, Tyrone, Pennsylvania. Oh. And, uh, you know, so being born on Halloween, what I really tried to do is, is every Halloween, I wanted to have some type of feature story. And one year I decided, I remember I wanted to do something about local ghost legends. So th- there were, there were definitely a few uh, ghost stories in our area. Uh, it, a lot of them I, I consider ghost lore, which is folklore based on that incorporates ghosts and spirits. So I collected all those stories up and then I actually went to Penn state nearby university, mm-hmm. same university that, that, uh, gave Saquon Barkley to the New York Giants, and <laughs> and you're you're welcome for that. Thank you. Yes, thank uh, you indeed. But mm-hmm. uh, I did a lot of research on uh, the the haunted buildings at at uh, Penn State, and there are quite a few. I put together a feature story, and I was absolutely shocked at the reaction it got. Mm-hmm. It was by far uh, one of the most popular feature stories I wrote. I remember people coming, uh, basically off the street to tell me their ghost stories. And so I think there was a marketing aspect of this where I, at the back of my mind thought, well, this is really, first of all, I enjoy writing it. And second of all, uh, I like my approach to it, which is I approach it sort of as a open-minded skeptic, which is what a good journalist should Mm be. And, and I also, um, thought there was a market for it. So that led to me, writing a self-published book about the ghosts of Penn State, which I called Haunted Valley. That led to America's haunted universities. And then what I've been doing recently is just kind of coupling up things that I'm interested in. And I'm really interested in music history with the supernatural. And so that kind of led to the rock and roll, the country, uh, World War II, which I'm fascinated with. Uh, and finally, uh, the haunted rails book so that's kind of the the story in the nutshell mm. was um paranormal state research society formed when you were going to penn state well that's that's a that's an interesting story too what happened was uh when i was writing the book on on uh penn state uh the penn state ghost stories 
I reached out to them mm -hmm. and I reached out to Ryan Buell, who helped me talk a little bit about these and helped me with my book. Nice. And then he connected me with Elfie Music. And at one point I was working with her to kind of create a book uh, for Llewellyn, my current publisher. And uh, that didn't really work out for no other reason than uh, it just seemed like it was going to be a little more complicated with all the different parties in there. But so that basically led to uh, getting a contract with Llewellyn in my first book and then, and then the follow-up. So that's, that's kind of the connection there, but yeah, they were, they were sort of in their heyday at that point. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. We've had uh, other authors with Llewellyn on those shows, I guess. So that's pretty neat to hear. But you're you're with them as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and hey, hey, tell them Chip says hi. You know, they, I will. And if Tim Roxbury, they'll know. But you know, yeah, tell them Chip says hi. Just say. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, Sorry, you got Tim. a question for Matt? Oh man, where do I even start? Yeah, I I, I do, and I I want to preface it because we're talking about careers in radio. You know, mm -hmm. I want to. You know. Um, but I was also a nightclub DJ. That doesn't really take us too close to the rock and roll and country so much, you know. But oh, which we will talk about. With that yeah. said, no, I mean there were there were times. One of the nightclubs I worked at was right next to the town, the city concert hall, you know. Mm -hmm. And we had a very cool boss in that he would shut the club down early if some uh, performer, you know, that was staying at our hotel where the nightclub was, you know, would come into the club. So like there's guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh know, my God. That, he's my favorite. That we, yeah, we'd shut down and do trade shots with, you know, or, you know, super tramp or whatever, except super tramp are mostly alive. And I can't say the same for Stevie Ray, but that kind of thing even translates over time too. So yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the World War II book, I really, 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 really want to talk to you about, but, you know, having been in radio and program director for these radio stations when I was there, which included Country Western, especially, well, back then, called then that was the 80s, and, and for rock radio, too, you know, subjects that resonate with, uh, uh, really with me as a radio guy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to preface that. Um, okay, and but thinking about guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan or with the country, you know, uh, George Jones or Hank Williams, mm -hmm. um, senior, you know, guys like that, that kind of our Patsy Cline, they all have their own mystiques that came with them, but there's also legend, uh, locations that they were uh, known for being in or hanging out in, yeah, yeah. You know? So, how does all that translate into? Uh, either the rock or country. I mean, you've got two rock and one country books, that at least I, I, I know of. So is it, uh, is it locations that they might be known for or legacies? Or when you come across, let's, let's say, the, the story of a rock and roller no mm -hmm. longer with us that may have some paranormal attributed to them, uh, what was the kind of take or angle? See, that's that is actually a great question that <clears throat> I think I think it I think it gets lost because I really approach uh, this 
material as a journalist, and I approach it because one, it's entertaining, and mm -hmm. I I want to write stuff that's entertaining. Sure. But over the years, and and I'll go through those books again. You know, I start out with uh, universities, and then I talk about music, and then I talk about uh, World War II, and then I talk about trains, and so the the natural reaction. Uh, it, I mean, even I'm kind of my own worst critic. I'm like, there's no... Aren't, aren't we all, though? <laughs> there, I say that there's there's no consistency to it. But, you know, one of the things I do is when I'm writing these books, a lot of my inner thoughts and my musings and my kind of research never goes onto the page because it's, to be quite frank, it'll probably be bore most of the, mm -hmm. the people. But the one thing that kind of... The thread that connects these is the idea that somehow we're connected to something bigger through a rise in our consciousness or a rise in the level of our awareness. And I think that's the thing that I don't think gets translated. And it could be a completely natural thing where, uh, you know, our consciousness uh, is more receptive to things and maybe we attribute right. It still natural. sounds like, you know, Matt's being his own worst critic here by saying yeah. it doesn't translate to the page. Because yeah. I'll respectfully disagree with that. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, so so if you look at uh, universities, the university ghost stories that I looked at, what I saw was a bunch of young people coming into a new experience. Uh, their lives are, this is pretty much their independent. And I also saw that these ghost stories are far more important than just entertainment. They serve as uh, a ways to embed stories about history into mm -hmm. uh, this, the students. It, uh, especially this is a transient population that comes into the campus and leaves the campus. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be able to tell these stories relatively quickly to give them <laughs> the essence. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing you see is that they work as uh, they warn students about dangers. A lot of these stories go stories about, uh, you know, uh, suicide victims and murder victims and all of that sort of stuff. It is a way to say that, you know, universities are kind of safe, believe it or not, uh, statistically safe areas, but mm. you still have to be aware that's one of these things that these did. They're almost like parents. So that I found that kind of fascinating. But really what kind of blew my mind was when I started to get into uh, reading or sorry, uh, researching and, and writing these books about uh, first rock and roll ghosts. And what I found was there are so many levels to this. There's first of all, there is the desire of the fan to hold on to these legends, to not let them escape, to kind of preserve them forever. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ghost stories about Elvis and Janis Joplin right. and Jim Morrison. Yeah, I was going to say, or the, the Buddy Holly and the Buddy Dave Holly, perfect example. And, yeah. Right, perfect example. A lot of those sites become almost uh, iconic. So uh, the the crash site near Clear Lake, Iowa, where Buddy Holly's uh, plane crashed that's haunted and there's ghost stories about that um you you see and throughout history 
there's probably no religion, no spiritual system that hasn't used incorporated music to increase that level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so you do see point. that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, you do, mentioned that plane crash, and I just, I, I was compelled for some reason to say, oh, baby, that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big bopper reference there. Right, right. And so that's... Uh, that w- was the connection there. And then, of course, with, with uh, World War II, I see that uh, the, the amount of tragedy, the intensity of the, the conflict is a way to change that level of awareness, to change that level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so finally, when I wrote uh, Haunted Rails, I, I thought to myself, well, you'll never be able to kind of incorporate that into this book. But in fact... Uh, the railroad was a very dangerous business, mm-hmm. and um, there was uh, a lot of death. Uh, a lot of there were wrecks that killed hundreds. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that trains uh, gave us a new way to look at time and space. It altered our perception of time and space. Interesting. Yeah, now, and and more transient than a college student even. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But at one point, we looked at someone who would uh, go across the country, um, you know, maybe move to Iowa or, you know, beyond the Midwest if you were from the East Coast. Essentially, you were never going to see them again. Mm, But the train changed all that. So that's what I got out of this whole journey as an author in this area is that a lot of times we focus on the ghosts, on the people who died, but we're really not paying attention to what I think is the most important part is that these ghosts, no matter whether you believe in ghosts or don't believe in ghosts, they're telling us something about ourselves mm-hmm. and our state of consciousness. Yeah. And our history and, and our, our ancestry. History. Yeah. Absolutely. All that stuff. Oh, I love, boy, I love that answer. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of hard to write down in a, a chapter or two, but I do try to always uh, bring those things up, uh, either in the forward or in the afterward. You know, because I think there are some people that, um, you know, I think people just like the stories, and they're like me. They they kind of like thinking about it and talking about it. But uh, a lot of times, what I see is that some of the material is really uh, doesn't kind of get to the depth of it. Yeah. But I mean, and I like the way you express it because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's not only keeping their memory alive, but but really painting a time back in history. And I think in this day and age, it's needed even more because it seems like there are so many folks who think that, you know, because our culture and the things that are okay now in the year 2019. Mm-hmm. that maybe weren't so much so in the 1980s or the 1960s or the 1890s or whatever. Right. You know, um, so you're you're bringing all of that in. I, I think that's awesome. You know? I appreciate that, yeah. And Matt, do you have any experience in, in investigating the paranormal? No, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, I've been asked on numerous times uh, to go on ghost hunts or (laughs) be a paranormal investigator. And my initial response is the hours sound incredibly bad. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to be out mucking around at 
three o'clock in the morning in a haunted house. So that's that's kind of my facetious answer. Uh, but on a different level, I mean, second of all, there's a part of me that would be at least, you know, now that I've written these books, I don't know whether I would uh, be as uh, leery, but I'm, I, I kind of like my status as a journalist where I'm going to take a paranormal investigator's uh, take and I'm going to take a uh, uh, skeptic take and I'm going to kind of smush them together and I'm going to have this tell both sides of the story and be unbiased about it. There's a part of me that if I go on one of these ghost hunts or, you know, investigate a site, I will either experience something which will be bad because that will twist my bias or I won't. And that will, I, I would fear that that would turn me more into what I don't want to become about this is a cynic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, would, so, it, would it be fair to say, because you're really taking it from a journalistic point of view, say, first yeah. and foremost, that whether you had an experience uh, to take the bias or not, it's still, there's a certain line as a journalist when you write something with from a journalist perspective that is really makes irrelevant, you know, the, yeah. whether you've had these experiences or not personally. Yeah, it, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a fair point. I think, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I would say that I fault, you know, a lot of times that personal experience mm-hmm. is going to be far more gripping than kind of this way that I approach it, which is this, you know, this person said this, this person said that, here's the history, here's some of the other ways All we right. can interpret it. I think those personal and, and that's why I do in my books try to reach out to paranormal investigators mm-hmm. and researchers and witnesses. What I find is that if I try to find a witness, um, they almost inevitably don't want to be don't want to talk about it if it's just mm-hmm. a common person. Sure. So I end up using a lot of people who have already gone to the press about it. But the paranormal researchers, you know, I find that the ones that I've talked to, and I, I even use, I think I use two or three in, in this book about various cases that I got a chance to talk to and investigate. They're really, they tend to be very honest about the situation. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always a little surprised because between you and me, I want them to tell me that, this place is haunted, but, uh, you know, the, I, I talked to a, a person who she's a, a historian, but she's also, I think an investigator. And I said, I'm really interested in this story. It's a, I think it was a train station. And she's like, you know, Matt, there's really nothing going on there. That's <laughs> that's. And then she, she laid out the history for me, which was that it was never really haunted. It was abandoned. Uh, a group took it over and turned it into one of those uh, fake haunted, not a fake haunted sure. house. Well, but, you novel, know, they made novelty of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And so, believe it or not, a lot of those stories became incorporated in the ghost lore around it. And I think I did end up using a little bit of that, mainly because I was fascinated about how, you know, some of this stuff can be manufactured. Some of this becomes, be. you know, a way we tell stories. Yeah. But, but the, 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 again, and it make, look, I mean, Timmy and I, lifelong paranormal investigators, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, would still draw a certain line and from an, uh, someone's objective 
perspective of something and somebody's, you know, subjective experience. And right. there's so much difference. And the ones that we look up to for being really, really good paranormal investigators in the eyes of these lifelong professionals is how how objective they can keep it. I mean, if you really want to do well as an investigator, then you do have to be um, skeptical, not yeah, not cynicism, but skeptical, uh, because we're not in any hurry to let our bias leak into this thing. If we want to keep our authority about something, mm -hmm. you have to stay as close to the objective picture as you can. That's an, yet another reason why the journalistic perspective is so important, you know, regardless of whether you had personal experiences or not. And I think right. as, as a journalist, Matt, you you would be fantastic at interviewing a potential client for a paranormal right. research team because mm -hmm. you have that objective, yeah. you know, opinion about yourself where you can, you know, get to the truth of how they really feel about what, what's going on with them. Right. Yeah, I think I think there are and I've I've talked to actually when I talk to a couple investigators, uh, sometimes it feels like they're they already have those those journalistic skills, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but when I was writing these, I was always a little leery about about doing that and kind of uh, even signaling that I have uh, a, a, a side, you know, you know, a kind of a dog in this hunt. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, and, and I should also be be quite honest with you. Uh, I really don't want I don't want to have those experiences, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they it kind of freaks me out. So and, I, you know, I should tell you just, you know, out of intellectual honesty, you know, kind of my my uh, journey through these books and interviewing these people and compiling these stories has been kind of it's actually been very interesting for me how i take it because when i'm writing these books it's almost like two voices click on and off mm -hmm. one says oh man i believe this and i would not want to run into this and then the other one clicks on and says well it could be this it could be that you know explaining it through natural sense and you know it's sort of like a, a, an inner debate but what i noticed about myself is uh, initially writing these as uh, entertainment uh, and and having fun with this. I never really expected to be a published author, uh, at least with this. Uh, so I, I was just really having fun and turning my hobby into, you know, uh, something a little more official. But what happened to me is as I wrote these books, people came to me with their experiences a lot of times never making them into the books because, you know, what's the odds that I'm going to run into somebody who, you know, went to the Mexican restaurant where Jim Morrison allegedly haunts the bathroom. You know, those, <laughs> those people aren't going to come up to me. But what I see now is that I would no, no more make light or make fun of somebody who has had those experiences because these people have had, uh, you know, kind of their lives shook. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of them, mm -hmm. uh, I would describe, you know, as I would talk to them, is this is a religious, uh, almost a, uh, not a religious, but a, a, a spiritual encounter. So, you know, my kind of perception of this has changed, and and that's why I, 
I think the the one thing that I always try to caution myself is, you know, not to make fun of these people, not even to pretend like you you don't believe them because uh, a lot of this belief is subjective and it's what they encountered and what they're giving you this story. They're kind of trusting you with it, whether I put it in a book or not. They they've trusted me. I'm, I remember re- recall one lady uh, talking to me about. Um, she had, uh, was a complete cynic, uh, about the supernatural and she bought a chair at a auction. And as soon as that chair, uh, was in, in the house, she started to experience all kinds of things. Uh, her daughter said that she saw, uh, a person in the chair waiting for her. I mean, Gentlemen, it just creeped me out. These stories, uh, she tried to get rid of the the uh, chair, and it was almost like the chair was fighting her husband, trying oh. to, mm-hmm. he was trying to put it in the car, and it was snapping back out at him, him, and he looked like he was in a fight after he finally got rid of it. And I will tell you, and then she said, you know, my life changed. I can never go back to that person. So this is a person who's had a spiritual encounter, and their their lives have changed. And so that's kind of what's at stake. Uh, I don't know whether that kind of uh, thing gets picked up in my book at all, but that's certainly philosophically how how I've kind of changed uh, when I when I talk about it. No, it makes sense. Us, I mean, Timmy and I talk all the time about how. Um, you know, it's just like you almost describe these people uh, in, in in essence having some sort of religious experiences, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, you know, when you see stuff fly across a room on its own, you know, it changes the way you see the world. That's mm-hmm. one thing. But yeah, even for Timmy and I, people come to us, tell, tell us their stories, but sometimes it's so palpable, so visceral for them. Mm-hmm that they're almost reliving this experience as they tell it. You can mm-hmm. see it in their body language and, you know, yeah. and just in their entire momentum through this. And, you know, again, from a journalistic perspective, you know, you can see that too. And, and so there's a whole different authority that's involved, you know, when these people volunteer this, even though it, it's really part of their subjective experiences, which might not necessarily make it into the book. I'll, I'll use it as a quick example. You know, I do past life regression hypnosis. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have to believe in a past life in order to benefit from a past life regression hypnosis. It's cathartic, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's kind of an unusual way of having lifelong questions that you ask within yourself about your own life. You know, it fills in some of these blanks for you whether they consider even after the process is over, you know, recounting a past life or not, doesn't have to, you don't have to go there with that belief system. It's, it's the bottom line. And I think we both appreciate how you're pointing out the real differences between how you're trying to account for a history. And it's really more about the history from a journalistic perspective than some novelty thing, you know. Right. Uh, and so, granted, you present it as entertainment, but what your passion is, is to recreate a history 
that can transcend lifetimes, you know, uh, through 300 right. years from now, somebody reads your book and can still get that same sense yeah. of what you're talking about, you know. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it resonates with us how you're explaining this. Right. I appreciate that. The other one of the uh, nicest compliments I had was a uh, I was at a book signing and a kind of a woman charged up to me and said, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. And I thought, oh, here it comes, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, she said, but I'll tell you, I learned so much about these rock musicians and I learned so much about rock history from just reading your book. And that to me uh, on if it's just that. If it's just that these stories are preserving history, um, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, and I think I think Timmy will agree with me. the The majority of encounters that we have seen, both personally and in groups, you know, if we do group investigations with people or whatever, is uh, you'll see that it's not all fear and loathing you know mm-hmm. it's not always evil or demonic or satanic or or whatever there are just things on the on the especially if you take an objective look you know uh, mm-hmm. you make sure you tick all the boxes you know before making any kind of assessment here um and most people don't realize that because the message in in uh, television or media uh, you know, using our realm as an entertainment mm-hmm. field is uh, it's always laced with fear of some kind. Or the gotcha. demon around every corner. You know, the the percentage of a case that's infested with a demonic presence is maybe 20%, if, if that, you know, in most cases. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of times uh, a client just wants to wants confirmation that they're not crazy, that there's actually things going on that they don't understand. I've mm-hmm. had numerous clients tell me that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can, I can also see that pattern in my own books because, um, you know, so just recently I was asked a question about well, you wrote the book on haunted rock and roll, and you wrote the book on ghosts of country music. Mm-hmm. So, haunted rock and roll was full of demons, and ghosts of country is probably, you know, just ghosts. And I, I thought I'm, I'm like, or that ghosts in country music were good and they were evil in, in rock and roll. And I, I did not find find that at all. I mean, uh, I, I don't find a lot very few of these stories that I've, I've compiled and I'm trying to think really have anything to do with demonic activity. I mean, there was, uh, uh, Bobby Mackey's, which yeah. allegedly had some, uh, demonic activity, but you know, that, that one was a little hard to tease apart too, because there's so many different stories in ghost lore. And, uh, that's the one thing that, I find pretty difficult to write about is that there's so many different accounts and there are, mm-hmm. are kind of layers to this that, that I can see just kind of in the narrative where you might have a ghost story that turns into ghost lore, which, uh, you know, is almost a folklore that isn't really based on any facts, 
but then you may have ghost lore that inspires more actual ghost stories. And, and a lot of what I do is kind of separate or try to separate, and I don't do it very well, but I try to separate. Well, uh, you really are your own worst critic, dear. Hey, hey, I'm just trying to be honest. <laughs> honest, uh, I, you know, because it's so difficult to do, but uh, I see that there, I, I call some of those um, ghost encounters or supernatural encounters, and then I have ghost lore. And ghost lore feels more like, uh, you know, in in Haunted Rails, I talk mm-hmm. about uh, the funeral train of Abraham Lincoln, which, you know, is, is said to arise on on the anniversary that his actual funeral train snaked through the countryside. And that if you're out there some night on that path, uh, you'll see his funeral train and it's pretty elaborate and you know the the story is actually really interesting and uh but you know i don't i don't find any actual accounts about that i found a a blog post that i included which i think could just be the person having fun with the story but in any event you have this this ghost lore that is folklore Mm -hmm. uh but so what happened to me what kind of changed my or, or maybe just gave me a different perspective on this is that I wrote uh, about uh, the ghosts of a uh, uh, building in Penn State called Old Botany. And Old Botany is the oldest standing building on the Penn State campus. And I think it's, you know, probably from the late 1800s or so. Wow. Uh, in any event, uh, there, there's just ghost lore out the wazoo about this place. There's one story that the president, uh, President Atherton's wife, is buried in the attic and she haunts this place. And uh, there's another story that you'll be able to, if you'll look up at the window, you'll see her looking out across the street to where uh, Atherton's grave is, where her husband has been laid to rest. And you know, a little sidebar here: if if anyone is going to start a college campus and they need me to advise them on how to avoid paranormal infestations on their campus, I would be a consultant because the first thing you don't want to do is put a grave on campus, but we did. And so there's all of these stories that uh, revolve around this, which, you know, I can't, honestly, I can't, I I found no evidence that uh, uh, Francis Atherton was, uh, buried there or even visited there. There just isn't any Mm. kind of real evidence. So it's just kind of folklore. However, a year or two after I wrote this book, I ran into a guy who was the janitor of uh, Old Botany. That was one of the places that he would go to uh, late at night. He had the night shift, so he would go in and clean. And he had story after story. Uh, One story in particular, he was vacuuming the the floor of the carpet and he uh turned off the vacuum cleaner and started to un to, to wrap it up and he heard what he, he said sounded like smashing glass and like someone was trashing uh, a laboratory and so he ran down the hall uh threw open the door where he thought the noise was coming from he opens it up and there is just absolute silence and the room is just a regular old office. So 
Later, he found out that right about where he was, uh, thought he heard the noises, was at one time a laboratory. And he had dozens of these stories. So to me, it can be when you're when I'm quick to say, oh, that's ghost lore, that's folklore. It could be that that ghost lore, folklore, again, acts on that consciousness, changes it, and and suddenly we have real real supernatural encounters, or at least uh, an encounter that that doesn't seem to fit a natural explanation. Do you base some of your findings on science uh, being part of you know the activity at in some of the stories that you've got? You know, it's just, I guess, you know, to be honest with you, it's really hard for me to use, uh, you know, I, I will if, uh, you know, if a paranormal investigator tells me they use certain devices and things, but, you know, I, I don't know whether science is the real way to analyze these stories. Um, can, can I try from a slightly different angle to feed Tim? Absolutely. Because there's a, you know, any king has the Machiavellian conundrum, you know, better to be feared or loved. And these are based mm -hmm. on true accounts and subjective accounts both. I, I want to use as, as a journalistic perspective that you've been using and, and how uh, you're painting the difference between, you know, the, the, the janitor and all these things that happen to him as opposed to things that you could find personally or prove personally by using the, the man who shot Liberty ballots uh, okay. as a basis for journalists. And, and for people who may not be familiar, uh, this was a movie uh, based on this journalist who covers a case of this legendary uh, hero from the wild, wild west. And the bottom line is uh, it, it was really more folklore than actual history, even to the own uh, legend of this tale, you know, and the journalist uh, surmises this whole thing by saying, you know, if the story is more interesting than the truth, print the story, mm -hmm. or if the mm -hmm. legend is more interesting than the truth, print the legend. And that is the journalistic conundrum, similar to a King's Machiavellian one, is okay, well, is that what I do here? If the, if the, if the, if the ghost lore is more prevalent or even more interesting than the actual history or anything that I could scientifically or otherwise back up. Do I go with the lore or do I go with what I've seen? Sounds like you're doing the latter here and, and going with what you can see and prove as opposed to the lore that may surround any particular case. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's uh, expertly put. Chip? Okay, then. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm sorry. I was gonna play that back in the loop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Timmy. You guys ready to take a break here? Sounds oh, good. Time already. Wow. Yeah. Sure. Holy right. moly, boy! Talk about the quickest two hours on radio. <laughs> you are listening to the Supernatural Realm with our special guest, Matt Swain. We'll be right back. Right after this. WCT.FM, your talk station. LM merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, 
jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait. With great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late nighter. So again, go to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. I would like to take a moment out to thank each and every one of you for listening to WCET 101.7 FM and the digital feed located on LateNightInTheMidlands.com, WCET-FM. I would also like to thank all of you for helping me be here for 12 years already. Can you believe it? 12 years already. Can you please help us make it another year and make a donation? This all started from one idea and one small audience. And with your help, it has become what it is today, one giant family exploring the possibilities, and crushing the lies. But all this is at risk if you do not take action and help keep this miracle train rolling on the tracks of truth and make a donation to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com. It's that easy. Just click the donation tab at the top right, and maybe the next big show or the next big guest will share information that saves your life. This message brought to you by the LNM Radio Network and WCETFM, your talk station, covering everything 24-7. Not because we have to, rather because we want to. Guess what, folks? Late Night in the Midlands archive is deep, going back several years, and you can have access to it all by becoming a late nighter. Becoming a late nighter is easy and only costs $5 a month. Late-nighters get access to so much more that others do not, such as the full three hours of the L&M show with bumpers and archives that go back years, the special video interview page where you can watch some of the greatest interviews in studio on camera. The L&M newsletter will make you the most informed listeners because you will know before anyone else about special events and so much more. So click the subscribe button today and become a late-nighter. So go to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com. That is www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com and sign up now. What is the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? There's some science behind it they're not looking at. Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some new truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show, Supernatural Realm, with Tim Roxbury, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host, Chip Reichenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's Late Night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is. WCT.FM, your talk station.
one is, you know, he left his power back on Reagan. Yeah, we talk about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are we back? Are we back? We are Two. back live right here on Triple W Late Night in the Midlands.com with our special guest, Matt Swain. So what do you guys talk about during the break? I don't elaborate know. a little bit? Oh, oh we talked about, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking a little bit about rock and roll ghosts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, rock and roll ghosts. And tell them a little bit about the old mediumship days and how I get visitations from famous people that I didn't necessarily followed. And you cited some specific examples off air. Yeah, Chip, I was I was watching a documentary on Gaia. It was back in 2013, and um, they were talking about you know reaching um, your higher level of consciousness, and there was a mention about playing uh, by you know playing those beats that you listen to. Oh, the mm-hmm. binaural, the, yeah, the binaural, binaural beats. beats, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's one of those is actually the Schumann resonance. That's a that's a big one, which is the 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 Hertz H uh, E R T Z, the tone of the Earth, if you will, those binaural beats. Yeah, and, and what they do is they take a tone. Let's just say I'm going to play a, a straight out A flat tone, but in one of the headphones I can have the modulation pitched down ever so slow, uh, flat, if you will. Uh, so you can hear this dissonant between, you know, your left ear and the right ear. One is playing, you know, the absolute A-flat, and the other is playing A-flat, you know, with a modulation of like .001. So your brain recognizes this dissonance even if your ears don't. Hmm. And somewhere between that left hemisphere, right hemisphere difference, it kind of prods the creative brain, if you will, um, to come out a little more. It appeals to what they call the pineal gland, that, that third eye. So it, by listening to this tone, um, it awakens your brain up, you know. Uh, yeah. Some people say if you if you meditate and cross your arms, by crossing your arms, you're inviting the left and right hemispheres of the brain together, hmm. you know, because the right is controlled by the left side, the left is controlled by the right side. So if you cross your arms or your legs, you're getting uh, both of these hemispheres involved at once. It kind of brings the logically and creative-minded. Uh, uh, spheres of each uh, to meet mm-hmm. and therefore it kind of uh, you know fills out uh, even a, a meditative uh, uh, balance by playing these binaural beats in the back Yeah, uh, that's interesting yeah. yeah, William Bowman was was talking on there a lot and it, there was mention of his book The, the Secret of the Soul and it talks about Oh. about out-of-body experiences and understanding um, our true nature. It was mentioned about that book, and that's how these binaural beats come come into play uh, in that discussion. It's real interesting, though. I thought of you, yeah. Chip, whenever... Uh, yeah, he does, because I won't shut up about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I think uh, for me, it goes back to something I said earlier about the use of music in almost all religious, uh, you know, ceremonies or, or worship services. And, you know, that incorporates rhythm, it incorporates tones, all of that is kind of compressed into, into this. And, you know, the one thing that I kind of found startling as I went into researching about haunted rock and roll, I would come across pictures of uh, a a Pentecostal um, Mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. And then I would look at Elvis in his prime, you know, back in uh, the Louisiana Hayride. And the expressions on the fans' faces, the way that they are reaching out, was almost identical to the way that the uh, parishioners were reaching out to the minister in his picture. I mean, you see it all the time about the connection between, and I I would imagine, I, I think that's probably why there seems to be such animosity between music and religion is probably because they're kind of uh, competing in a way. Yeah, so sure. Elvis was that uh, poisonous snake, if you will. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's uh, mythologically speaking. I think yeah. that's right on. And even uh, the tree of temptation too, you know? Right. Right. Always. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of all there. So those are things that I think that I, you know, looking back now that, uh, are uh have made the journey uh, worthwhile yeah yeah even in music theory you know it, it ties into the religion right uh, and rock and roll too there's this one um mode it, the modes are like scales but in mm-hmm. theory they're deeper there's one that i think it's it uh, e minor or a minor one of the two mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, a mode based on a scale of either e or a minor uh, uh, and they're affiliated with the Gregorian chants, mm-hmm. you know, all these uh, these Gregorian monks that are always singing in that minor tone, you know, right. oh my yes, requiem, that someone like a Grand Funk Railroad, for example, or a Pink Floyd could actually purposely write songs in these modes Um to bring about that extra minor kind of thing or that medieval sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it all ties in. One of the things that I wrote about in Haunted Rock and Roll was, uh, you know, and I just got done saying that there was no demonic activity in rock and roll. Now I'm going <laughs> to contradict myself. But uh, there was, uh, I think it was called the, the Devil's Interval. And it was a certain combination of these, and I can't really explain it, but it sounds like uh, uh, in this scale there were no half steps, it was all whole steps. Mm-hmm. But uh, allegedly that if you would play this music, that that's what would uh, bring Satan. Yeah. You, you could call up Satan. And yeah. one of the examples of that yeah. is the beginning of Purple Haze mm-hmm. uh, from Jimi Hendrix at Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's that. So I did write about that, but again, uh, I think I wrote about that mainly about the connection between uh, between music and sp- and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and scripture, and or anti scripture, if you will. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and some people will say it's a pentatonic scale, although they'd be inaccurate about that. Again, going back to music theory, which is the common blues scale. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, plus you could you could have uh, uh, again Elvis Presley, who really listened to uh, you know the uh, his uh, black friends, mm-hmm. you know, and their blues, you know. Mm-hmm. Which in some circles was in itself considered sinful. You could even say that about Hank Williams to a certain case, because there are some songs that he did using pentatonics or these blues, or an alien mode in in, uh, in music theory, built to sound really extra super minor when everybody played these hymns and stuff in major keys. You know, right. Minor keys were that was the sound of the devil. And there, there was something that I could never really prove. I heard a bunch of stories about it, but I was never able to get any written documentation. But Hank Williams was um, mentored by a guy from the a black guy from the Delta, who, and I think his name was like Teacup. Uh, I had a bunch of people tell me, but that's where he picked up some of that blues. And, you know, when I wrote about haunted rock and roll, I talk about how uh, rock and roll really starts with a ghost story. And that's the story of, of Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, you probably have heard this story before, but it it's uh, one of the more kind of fascinating. It's almost like, uh, to me, it's like an origin story for rock and roll. Uh, and it, and it, it's, it's fascinating to me, the depth of it, but, you know, Robert Johnson and a lot of this, interestingly enough, it, it goes back to a little bit about what we were talking about, about how, you know, history and, and, uh, folklore kind of intersect that, that there's this kind of tension between the two, because Mm -hmm. there are, there are actual people who uh, lived at the time when Robert Johnson, you know, the late 1910s, early 1920s, I think, uh, that talked to historians about this. But Robert Johnson was a uh, he he loved uh, playing the blues, and as a, a black man in in the Delta at that time, you basically had two job opportunities you either worked the fields or you were a blues man and he looked at being a blues man as a much more uh lucrative and a lot Mm -hmm. easier way to make a living and a a lot more women a lot more wine so (laughs) he tried very hard to uh, learn blues guitar unfortunately he had one problem in that he was terrible at it uh and, and Again, it's it's probably not fair to say that because he was surrounded by the best blues guitar players in the world, mm-hmm. uh, and so eventually he would he became so annoying he was always trying to get them to, these blues masters to teach him how to play blues guitar that eventually they kind of kicked him out of the circle. He disappears from uh, the public record for about a year, comes back. And the one version of the story has uh, uh, one of the uh, famous bluesmen at the time was named Sun House, who was one who tried to befriend Robert Johnson, but 
just had enough of him and, and kicked him out. But Sunhouse and his friends were out uh, outside of a jute joint in a in a in the parking lot, and they were uh, having a smoke and drinking and talking. And they heard this music that was absolutely otherworldly. They never heard music like this. It was the blues, but it was completely its own thing. And when they went in, they see Robert Johnson on the stage playing the guitar like, you know, a demon. And uh, mm-hmm. they said uh, the way that the the light had caught his eye, it looked like his eyes were just these kind of clouds uh, glazed over. Mm-hmm. Just a fascinating story. And, you know, the, the whole tale, uh, because this is... Um, you know, this is uh, African-American legend, but it's also, you know, well-known throughout European uh, mm-hmm. uh, philosophies of this idea that you can sell your soul to the devil. Right. You'll get a year of fame and fortune, but eventually the devil comes and and, and takes over the contract. And in this mm-hmm. case, uh, you know, not too long after that, he had about a year or so as a... As a uh, a famous bluesman in the area and then he died very painfully mm. some say he's poisoned and then others said the you know the devil came to to take him um but it's a it's kind of fascinating to me to see that how this this story continually uh is used in uh rock history you'll hear bob dylan talk about selling his soul sure. mm-hmm. uh and also, uh, he was one of the first. Uh, um, he was uh, one of the first members of what's called the Twenty Seven Club, um, which is this uh, propensity for these rock stars to die at the age of twenty seven. Oh, right, like uh, yeah. Janis Joplin and you know, Jim Morrison. Yeah, Jim so really kind of interesting. Yeah, Matt, and, and that depiction of Robert Johnson's eyes, by the way. Uh, that Matt was just talking about was confirmed by more than one source. Mm. You know, it, it just wasn't a, a once off that, you know, the one particular guy saw that in his eyes. And you could say that about the lighting of the club in that room at the time, but there were multiple people who agreed with them, uh, both on and off the record. Mm. Matt, we were, Interesting. We, yeah, we were talking about hauntings and it related to country music earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. Have you heard any stories of hauntings in Nashville? Yeah, oh, that God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that place is absolutely crawling with spirits. Um, <laughs> the Ryman Auditorium is reportedly haunted. Uh, some of the spirit suspects there are Hank Williams is supposedly haunting that place. Um, uh, Patsy Cline has been uh, implicated in the hauntings. One yeah. of the more interesting uh, coal stories, miner's daughter, one, whoever that was, also Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn, thank you. Uh, so, so uh, one of the stories is that um, the the person who really built the Ryman uh, was uh, a. His name was, he was a Captain Ryman. He was Hmm. originally a, he owned, I think he, he was into gambling and prostitution and really kind of a, I think he was a a steamboat gambler type of guy and, uh, and got pretty rich doing it. And there was a a minister who came into Nashville and, uh, 
had basically said he was going to um, change Nashville and bring Nashville back to God. And this uh, Captain Ryman uh, went to some of his services really to make fun of him, but he ended up converting and he was the one that built the Ryman. And when he built the Ryman, it was supposed to be for uh, spiritual reasons, uh, you know, religious services. What happened, though, was uh, it eventually became secularized. And apparently he is not very happy about about uh, uh, this being used in secular music. So he's been seen there. There's, a, I think, the ghost, the, the ghost in gray. I think he's kind of behind that haunting. But uh, there are a few of these artists who say that during rehearsals they'll look out and there will be a single person out in the the, the audience. And uh, after the they're done, they'll go out to see who it was, and that person has has disappeared. So the Ryman is really haunted. Uh, right down the street or down the alley is a place called uh, Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. Patsy Cline has been seen there, uh, apparently. Uh, and so that that place is also haunted. I think the owner of, uh, of Tootsie's is also uh, reported to be one of the, the, the uh, ghosts that haunt that place. Just, uh, I'm just, there's a lot of bars that have, have that. There are a few record shops that are haunted. And even the the new place, uh, the Grand Ole Opry was transitioned from the Ryman out to this Opry land. Mm-hmm. And apparently a lot of the ghosts have kind of migrated with uh, with that. And in one case, they said that uh, the they use some of the wood from the Ryman in a new place. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, people that I talk to and a lot of paranormal investigators who talk about the spirits actually, you know, inhabiting objects where the objects themselves are haunted. Yeah. That's a Johnny Zappas type of thing, Timmy. And, and back to Matt's point, as he talks about this, to keep in mind, again, it's where the lore meets the actual research. Right. Yeah. Just saying, but yeah, it, it follows a lot. Yeah. One of my favorite stories, though, is is about uh, Patsy Cline because I, I, I just always loved Patsy Cline. I just think she's an American original. I think she has one of the most beautiful voices, oh, probably yeah. in music history. Uh, ahead of her time, too. So yeah, so far ahead of her time. And the other thing, I just you know, I, I haven't watched the whole PBS country thing yet i want to but what i'm always fascinated not fascinated it's the wrong word uh it's it's almost uh just i'm i'm so sad that i think patsy klein was like 29 when she died hank williams i think was also 29 and yet when you looked at them they just look like they were in their 40s and had seen it all they had had lit You know, yeah. they had lived such amazing and a lot of really hard uh, lives, lives yeah. and that they were taken from us. And yet we have these little pockets where they're preserved now, where they're still, you know, 27, 28 years old. I think that's the great thing. But one of the stories that's outside of Nashville is that Patsy Klein's dream home uh, that she bought 
apparently is haunted. And this this goes beyond the kind of folklore, ghost lore that we talk about, because the one story, the account that I uh, found that was written in a newspaper is about the owner who uh, bought the house. And, and remember back then, the dream home, the mansions were not the huge monstrosities now this is actually kind of a middle-class house that mm-hmm. patsy had but this guy was a patsy klein fan and he bought it and he fixed it up and he began to experience some weird things and initially he discounted it all but then his sisters came to help him uh renovate the place and talked uh, about seeing the fireplace light up by itself and they heard weird noises and strange presences. And then this guy, uh, the owner wasn't ready to admit that his house was haunted until he heard what he thought was his, uh, dogs walking across the, he was downstairs and he could hear this click clacking across the, the, the upstairs and he thought it was his dogs, but he looks down and his dogs are right next to him. And he could still hear this click clacking, which sounded to him exactly like uh, a, a woman in high heels walking across the, the floor. So he went to another owner of the house. And this was a country star that had the house somewhat after uh, Patsy Klein had it. Uh, and she said that she had continually had experiences where she thought she was in the presence of, of Patsy Klein. So in a way that one kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah. And, and something that, that is very rarely, if ever talked about and taking Patsy Klein in particular, Timmy, uh, and, and the grand old Opry and the Ryman auditorium, all, all of this stuff is further compounded by this little secret about the music production itself. Um, you've heard of George Martin, who was the Beatles producer, right? Mm-hmm. How he could take the Beatles and make them sound so, so really, really good. The Beatles were paying attention to folks like uh, the Beach Boys, Brian Williams, who did some rare things in the studio that really started with some of the grand old opera artists, including Patsy Cline, which is, and this re- recording was so, so long ago and so really early on its process of using reel-to-reels in a recording studio Hmm. that they actually started to use effects where Patsy Cline would harmonize with herself, you know, two or three or four different times. So they could get, give her the effect of chorusing, flanging and bridging her own self. Wow. if If she sings the same track in the same exact key, no harmony or anything like that, that effect in itself is subliminal. It's mm. like on radio, we call it the secret smile. If you smile while you talk, you know, then people will subtly hear, oh, that sounds like an extra nice guy, or boy, mm. he's passionate about what he talks about because they can't see it. But in the recording process, and uh, some Loretta Lynn too, but especially Patsy Cline, they had this genius who was way ahead of his time who was making her sing that same exact track like two or three times over. That's amazing. The voice sounds automatically fuller. And we go, oh, my God, she was really that good, you know? But you you got somebody like Patsy Cline who knows that she's, no, she's really not that good. And it was one of those, like, trade secrets that's, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you can't talk about it and, and live type of secrets. I mean, mm. you know, but it, 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 it fed into all of these things that add to the lore of everything. Was something yeah. that they really didn't even start talking about until this particular decade, the 2010s. You know? Yeah. We're only a couple of months from being over, by the way. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, and the other thing that I found out, which was, uh, again, it's that um, exploring one thing and finding another. But um, when I wrote this book, I had, I really. Prior to this, uh, I had felt that Hank Williams, um, you know, I knew I was going to find some ghost stories about Hank Williams because mm-hmm. one of the one of the criteria, not the exclusive criteria, but one of the criteria that usually pops up is that these ghost stories are about people who, and the terminology is important, are larger than life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hank Williams had this larger than life. Uh, he had that... Um, saint on one side, sinner on the other <laughs> thing going pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I had the image in my head because I've always been a Hank Williams fan mm-hmm. that he was a, he was just a hellraiser. You know, he mm-hmm. was just a, a troublemaker and he, you know, so that's what I expected to find. But what I found uh, was, well, that was true. Uh, there was another side to it. Another thing that a lot of people don't know is that he had terrible back problems. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there are there's some speculation that he was born with spinal, a form of spinal bifida. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the alcohol and a lot of the, the painkillers he was taking was really to deal with that, that excruciating pain. So it gave me a, an entirely different perspective on, on Hank. And, you know, the ghost stories of Hank stretch from uh his his birthplace in alabama montgomery alabama uh the whole way up to west virginia where he died on this uh legendary uh hank williams death ride which was he was sort of an um, incredible story about how they were trying to get him to a concert in in ohio uh and he uh, started uh started the drive, I think from Nashville, didn't get very far. I think he got to Knoxville. He and his driver decided to stay in a hotel and get drunk. Uh, they got kicked out and then they went to an airport. They got kicked off the airplane. The airplane had to go back. I don't know whether it was because of weather, because he was being unruly. They finally got it back in the car and, uh, in West Virginia, he passed away. And there are all these ghost stories about how he still haunts that area and that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, I think it was kind of a sudden and unexpected death on top of that. You know? Yeah, you know, he was always, he was living right at the light knife's edge at that yeah. point. He, yeah, pretty you know, much most of his life he was. Yeah, yeah, and he was really getting in, he was losing a lot of gigs because he wouldn't show up or he'd show up drunk. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was probably not a really well thought out. Uh, plan yeah, yeah. and you can say the same really about Elvis Presley the circumstances of his death and his life but Elvis Presley was much more prescription drug you know I mean than even we're told I mean stuff to keep you awake stuff to make you go to sleep stuff to take the pain away right stuff you know and he had this terrible issue with sleep mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, he could, he just couldn't sleep. So they would, boy, they would feed, you know, one pill on top of another. And, and then you go to different doctors, eight different doctors who none of which knew about the other, you know. Right. Uh, and they just give them anything. Or, or George Jones. I was a big George Jones fan, you know, back in the day. And, yeah. you know, the, the longer you go past the man's death, the more stories you hear about what he was really like. Yeah. And basically, he was a mean drunk, you know, look, I mean, some people are happy drunks, you know, uh, and some people are just really nasty, but he was like, and uh, sorry, George, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead. Well, and I will, I will speak but up people for say him. nasty, nasty, nasty. Uh, yeah. Uh, when he was drinking, he was not not a nice man. Yeah, yeah, and I'll I, I will also uh, say that uh, he kind of got it honestly because his dad was uh, <laughs> oh. uh, a mean drunk and incredibly oh. abusive. To incredibly him. abusive. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. The stories are like you know where truth is stranger than fiction. Bad. Right. I mean, yeah, his right. dad was horrible to him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But boy, what a voice, you know. Yeah. I mean, you could hear the sadness in that man's voice that transcended whatever mood he was in. Right. You guys may not be able to hear it, but I'm, uh, our producer, Cece, uh, just sent me a song of Hank Williams. So, uh -huh. uh, you know, whenever you guys want, I can play it. I know you won't be able to hear it, but the listeners will hear it. So, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, CC always loves for us to not talk about anything. <laughs> Probably hear some song about it, but you know, yeah, whatever, Tim. You know, that's what you want to do. <laughs> All right, uh, this is "Tear My Beer" by Hank Williams Sr. and Jr. Right here on the Supernatural Realm. We'll be right back right after this. There's a tear in my beer because I'm crying. Back. I just wanted to play that, you know, just just like 30 seconds of it, but it, just for the listeners to hear if they haven't uh, heard Hank Williams Sr. for a while, but we're back. Chippy. Yeah, I'm here. Right, just making sure you're still here with us. Of course. 
Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a, a couple of questions uh, about your um, uh, your your book about the uh, haunted World War Two. Mm -hmm. I got kind of an unusual question for you. One of the things that uh, you know excites me with regard to your writing is you you talk about Aleister Crowley, and and your and and sometimes. I think, especially if you're going to combine hauntings and, and World War II, both, you, know, you you get in the mind of a guy who is probably, uh, you know, if you if you mention if you search the term occult <laughs> for anywhere in the 20th century, you know, you'll hear about Aleister Crowley. You know? mm -hmm. uh, but there are some things where you talk about uh, things uh, on the American soil. Some of the things. With regard to the Russian front, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I, I was always kind of, and I wanted to ask you specifically about this, um, and I was, for some reason, more of a Winston Churchill, King George the Sixth kind of guy. Yeah, uh, for that for that time period, because you know, talk about people that carried the weight of the world on their shoulders. You know, yeah. I mean, b b before we could really recruit the help of the United States, you know, I mean, this, this was looking like, you know, really for, for Great Britain, you know, um, a terrible decision to have to make because, you know, they could see that France is falling, you know, Norway, Holland, Belgium collapsing, mm -hmm. all, all leading up to this time. And, and it was really, I mean, if, if there was anyone for where an all or nothing scenario took hold, it was there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to just ask you as far as when, uh, with the book and the, the, some of the stories you might have covered in the book, if there was any of that kind of influence with any of these uh, spirits or stories that you talked about. Sure. I, it, well, you know, to begin with, with uh, Alistair Crowley, uh, you know, it was kind of unusual because I wrote about him in Haunted Rock and Roll because he, you know, there's the Led Zepp curse uh, that Jimmy Page was a kind of a uh, Crowley nut. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of a sudden I'm writing about him in um, Haunted World War II. And the... I guess the the reason that he appears there is because I I actually started I wanted to do it and I wanted to get kind of away from just the ghost stories and talk a little bit about uh, what I saw was a kind of a supernatural battle between uh, the Nazis and the Axis forces and the Allies and and you know I had been kind of steeped into uh, reading before I had read quite a bit about, you know, Adolf Hitler being <clears throat> tied into the dark, dark arts and, mm -hmm. and, uh, the Nazis being tied into the dark arts and into the occult. And I thought, you know, this is going to, this is one of those things where I, you know, a lot of people write books because they know so much and I write books because I want to learn so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what I found out was that, uh, the the kind of I, I can't say that there was no occult influence uh, in Nazi Germany, but from what I read and from my interpretation of it, 
that Hitler put the kibosh on the occult uh, kind of groups that had helped him attain power uh, mm. once he took power because he did not want to compete. He, he was the state. He did not want to compete with any other type of, of, of religion. So, you know, uh, there are stories about how uh, some of these, uh, the the Vril Society and, and mm-hmm. some of the other... Yeah, that's uh, what I was thinking of when you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, they, they were integral... They, they did, he was, you know, I don't think, he, I don't even know whether he was ever a member, but, it, you know, they definitely did promote him. But at a certain point, he started to purge... Uh, people from those groups and, and got rid of fortune tellers and and that sort of thing. Uh, so so what was weird for me was I thought I would have all this stuff about the Nazi occult and I just had a bit, but what I found is that the occult was really uh, part of this kind of spiritual warfare with uh, Nazi Germany. There were there was a, a coven of witches that had. Uh, this thing called Operation Cone of Power, where they were meeting on a regular basis. And I think Dion Fortune, I might be mispronouncing the name, uh, was also uh, would send out uh, messages and letters to her followers every month to make sure that they were praying at a certain time every day to stop the the what was a pending Nazi invasion and then this operation cone of power was also in 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 effect at that time and also the new thought movement in the United States which you know is uh, a little bit off the mainstream Christianity but they were also doing a lot of uh, praying and a lot of positive thinking trying to get the trying to win win this war so what I found there is uh, kind of opposite of what I thought, but there right in the middle of it all was Aleister Crowley, who um, in, in there, the one story that I bring up is that he was the one who taught Winston Churchill how to do the V for victory sign or what we would call the peace symbol, but it was actually a way to ward off the devil or, or it was some type of, you know, occult um, symbol. So he was also allegedly a uh, uh, was he was working with Ian Fleming, who later on uh, wrote the James, James Bond. Uh, created James Bond and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was one of my favorites. But I like that. In any event, uh, he becomes kind of the center of this. Uh, uh, at least he said he was the center of this occult. Uh, battle against the Nazis. Kind of fascinating stuff. And you also mentioned uh, Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill uh, is in the book for two reasons, because his ghost has been seen in one of the subways mm. that served as kind of a command center uh, for during during the Blitz, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, there's a story, and I'm not sure whether you all have heard about it, it was new to me, that during World War II, he uh, traveled to the United States to meet with uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and FDR put him up in what what's now become the Lincoln Bedroom. And wow. this, he said that, or at least there's a story that he, he mm-hmm. told, that uh, he came out of the, the bathroom completely naked, 
and uh, hopefully everyone has had their dinner at this point. <laughs> and uh, he looks over to the dresser, and there's Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and Abraham Lincoln's, you know, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln slowly turns to, and faces uh, the naked Winston Churchill, who said, I'm I'm sorry, Mr. President, you seem to have have me at a disadvantage, which sounds very (laughs) Churchillian. Uh, And and then uh, Abraham Lincoln's ghost slowly fades away, which I just thought was just a a great, great ghost story and a great story. And I think, you know, several accounts of that one uh, from both sides of the pond, by the way. uh, Really? That actually happening, except what was actually said, uh, according to Churchill, was the. Uh, it was the spirit of Abraham Lincoln who said, look, at least it's not Chip Reichenthal naked. Uh, <laughs> somehow that never makes it into the historical novel. Yeah, that's a good one. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm wondering why there's so many stories of hauntings in, in universities, Why why that is. All over the country. So there's there there are a lot of different reasons, uh, in my opinion, in for that. Um, you know, first of all, in and again, it's it's one of those things where my preconceptions didn't pan out because mm-hmm. my preconceptions are that you go to a university to kind of lose those superstitions, right? But what happens is I think there's, there's a few things that I, I think happen. And one is you now have a community of these real young creative types that are, you know, away from their parents for the first time and they're open to new experiences. Okay. So I think that's one of the things that these ghost stories do in my opinion is build communities. It builds a common kind of mythology and folklore uh, that everyone can kind of understand. And everyone, you know, if I know the ghost story and I run into a, a first-year person who just arrived on campus, I'm going to tell her or him that story to build that community. And it makes me look good. It looks makes me look like I'm in the know. Uh, so that that's one reason. The other reason is it's, you know, they can be uh, stories about uh, – warning other students but there's also the one of the things that uh struck me is that when i was writing the the ghost stories uh about the universities is that as i moved as i studied the ghost stories in the east coast and in the midwest and then over time uh, as i moved farther west the numbers diminish somewhat now mm-hmm. it could be that i just don't have that many connections to those those schools and they might be you know cram full of ghost stories but i didn't find that so uh, i started to think about that and i think that one of the things that happened uh is that Pen- ghost uh, um universities like penn state ohio state the big 10 schools mm-hmm. even you know i guess harvard and the other ones would be much older than that yeah but but a lot of the the really haunted universities kind of arise, kind of are founded and start to grow during the late 
1800s, which uh, is the prime time for spiritualism. So that, you know, as these students are in this new area, building a community, some of these, you know, these spiritual ideas are going to be incorporated into their own into their own mythos. So that was, you know, that's uh, one of the ideas that I had. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, Butler County here, we have a couple of hauntings up at Sleepy Rock University. Uh, there's a frat yeah. house up there. Um, it's it's known to be haunted by Sam Mohawk. Um, Miller Hall is, is a known haunted place up there mm-hmm. as well. And, uh, and there's been even stories about that on, you know, on TV. There's uh, the the other thing is I always thought that it would be the big universities like the Penn States, like right. the Wisconsin's that are haunted, but the smaller ones like Slippery Rock and near my uh, near State College is another uh, uh, college called Juniata College. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it, but uh, th- it's kind of a funny story because I I uh, uh, I was asked to be a guest speaker at. Uh, uh, at the Huntington high school. And, uh, I decided, and, and Juniata college is right outside of Huntington. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe Juniata college has a ghost story that I could share with them. And what I found was like, they had like five or six different ghost stories, just as equally compelling as the state call as the Penn state one. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it has to be, there has to be when you, come across these things, there has to be a reason. And, you know, I'm sure that believers are going to say there's a supernatural reason. And I'm sure skeptics are going to have another kind of, you know, uh, natural explanation for it. But the key is, how does it get preserved? How does it get, if it's, you know, if you're, how does it get preserved and grow? I mean, some of the ghost stories in Penn State are over a hundred years old, you know. So that's that's really what I think is maybe there are supernatural encounters or people have these spiritual experiences there, uh, but they're preserved, right? And and that environment in a in a university, I think, is just perfect to preserve those stories. And that that these folks are young and that they are experiencing things uh, for the first time. I think they're more open-minded to it, and uh, that, that's that's just some of the the ideas that I had. Mm-hmm. Chip, you got, yeah, a, you got a question about university? Well, I was just going to comment on on what y'all both both were talking about just this past week on on the last episode of my my own show. Final same shameless something mm-hmm. was it? Kindness beyond the veil. We had uh, Mark Atria this past Monday, who directed a film about Chris Duchesne's malevolent haunting when he was a track star at Geneseo College, which mm-hmm. is uh, near Rochester in uh, New York. Uh, but uh, she took this malevolent haunting. It was called the C2D1 haunting, which that was their dorm room. And there was some history involved there, too, because it had to do with uh, somebody who was basically tortured. I, I believe it was the French and Indian War. Yeah. Um, wasn't, that, wasn't that person uh, somehow related to, to Chris back, back way back when? 
Yeah, yeah, depending uh, on who you ask, but yeah, I, I think there are some generations ties, that yeah. go back where he would have been like a third cousin twice removed or something from one of the soldiers who endured this thing called the torture tree, mm -hmm. um, where they were, they were uh, I think, uh, no, there was some George Washington influence, so it could have been part of the uh, American Revolution, but they were supposed to scout out some um, uh, Iroquois tribes in the area or Senecoy uh, tribes of that area and um, basically not just to scope them out but to torture and kill them mm. and they ended up uh, being at the wrong place at the wrong time uh, by the tribe themselves and were tortured for information, tortured on behalf of what Washington had actually asked them to do with regard to some kind of genocide-esque uh, treatment of these tribes. And um, so there, uh, this tree is, where it happened was really about some 20 feet away from where Chris DeCesare's dorm room ultimately ended up being and they could they could trace his generations back yeah, to to uh, yeah it's like a third cousin twice removed or something mm -hmm. from one of the guys who not only was tortured there but his remains were buried there and then moved away from that uh, to be put in some military burial uh, proper uh, and then the military the daughters of the American Revolution decided that. No, maybe they should be really buried back where they were killed. And so the remains of these, then there were some grave robber uh, types of things that happened to the actual remains of this soldier who was uh, of, killed and, and tortured at this uh, the, that torture tree. Yeah, there's um, a lot of residential and intelligent um, energies there. Sure. Yeah, mm. but but uh, and, and uh, our guest proper, this Mara Katria, who had directed uh, directed a film based on this whole C two D one haunting, and and where it's stemmed from, and all that stuff, really painted a picture of the the social environment of the can uh, the campus at that time. And this kid had uh, gone there to be a track star. And they, they ended up being known as the ghost boy of Geneseo. Uh, certainly not what he asked for. Mm. And certainly had nothing to do with the reason that he was in this college to begin with. It took away everything that he transpired to do, you know. But it was mm -hmm. also people dealing with this new and different thing about a haunting in the 1970s, 1980s. That you just didn't talk about that stuff. You just didn't talk about it. So you got some people who sided with them because it was the right thing to do. Some people who uh, went against him and his reputation because it was the right thing to do. How did these young people grapple with these things that are just outside of their comfort zone? So, and I think a lot of that translates to um, to what we've been talking about with Matt here about you know uh, universities and and. Uh, Haunt, hauntings that happen in the universe because it's not just the hauntings themselves or the lore of the school or the history of the school that Penn State especially was was mentioned and some of the history there mm -hmm. but how, how are these kids dealing with these topics 
that are a bit outside of their comfort zone, a bit outside of their grasp, and and you know how do you act socially or individually toward that sort of thing? So again, you have all these different things feeding upon, you know, not just that it's a haunting, but it's you know it it is a social thing with these transients, these kids who are here for just a limited amount of time, and how they deal with it at the prime of their youth in that moment. Right. And where there was a long, shameless self-promotion to a show that no longer exists. <laughs> we but got... it's still topical to the point, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we got like 10 minutes. Is there anything else you want to uh, mention, Matt? Uh, how people can get all your books? Uh, oh, promotion, sure. Yeah. Events, uh, that sort of thing. So... You can probably, uh, Haunted Rails should be in uh, Barnes and Nobles and on Amazon.com and on uh, BarnesandNoble.com. I think you'll also find Haunted World War II there. Some of the other books that I've written are now, I've, I have them uh, pretty much exclusively on Amazon. So you can check it out there. Um uh, if you have a local bookstore, if they don't have it in, I ask you to uh, to, uh, to request it. And also, if you read any of the books and you like them, uh, it, it would be great to get a, a positive review about that. And I have a plug for uh, another writer that I want to make sure I pay homage to, and, sure. and that's mm -hmm. our Gary Patterson. He wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a couple books about... Uh, rock, rock and roll folklore and rock and roll mythology and really one of the books that sparked my uh, haunted rock and roll was uh, called uh, A Walk on the Dark Side and it is just a great book about uh, uh, Robert Johnson uh, the Led Zepp curse and some of these other great um, stories of rock and roll and he passed away a couple years ago but his his stuff is is excellent and i recommend it if you can get a hold of that and is gary somebody you you knew or just somebody that you kind of modeled uh something yeah no no i i i never met him um and uh i i wrote this book and um i mentioned i think on a radio show that he was kind of my inspiration and uh we were trying to connect uh, to get on a show together and he he passed away before that happened so that oh. was kind of kind of sad i would have loved to uh, you know i've i've listened to his interviews and and he's he has some fascinating stories uh he has his own uh ghost story that occurs down in uh, uh the crossroads down in uh, oh. uh, uh yeah down in mississippi and uh, i was able to write about that in uh, another book that i uh, produced called even more uh, uh, haunted rock and roll, which is a sequel to that book that I self-published. Wow! So, yeah, I didn't good. think there was a film that alluded to all that with uh, Ralph Macchio, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. yeah, 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 absolutely. Huh. Yes, yeah, Mom. Yeah, Timmy and I get that. You know, like radio guests that we were on the cusp of maybe, you know having a chance to interview but they they died before we could get to the jim mars for me was one of those guys jim mars now why do i know that name jim mars was a he was a journalist out of texas 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was on Art Bell and you know, or the uh, Ancient okay. Aliens and a, a few other things that he. Um, uh, it was interesting to see that, you know, because he went into the field of journalism uh, for a local newspaper of his. I, I'm not sure if it was uh, near the capital of Texas in Austin, but it was it was in that general area. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the more he got to learn as a green, you know, the brand new, fresh eyed kid in journalism, um you, it really jaded him, you know, mm-hmm. like very quick on. So he kind of made it a point, uh, things that he came about uh, that are the kind of truths, quote unquote, that have been held from us, you know, or, you know, restrained from what other governmental or federal agents, you know, the Smithsonian or, or whatever, that, that manages to keep these news stories away from us because the you know, people just don't want us knowing was the right. kind of journalism that he ultimately took on, you know, as he went uh, through his latter years. And uh, man was a just a genuine gem. But it resonates to anybody who's been, you know, in journalism in, in one way or another, especially if they, you know, if they came to the forefront proper, you know, as, as a news reporter, you know, a, a, a newspaper or a magazine writer you know, that is responsible for covering stories. And, and, you know, the more you learn, the more you see the process is, as uh, faulted, you know. The name sounds really familiar. Yeah. yeah. One of the guys I would have liked to, you know, had on this show, but he passed away some months back. But uh, uh, Stanton Friedman uh, would have been. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Stanton Friedman, right. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our Rosemary Ellen. Uh, Rosemary Guiley. Guiley, yeah. Yeah, so we see, yeah, we see, we get, so we get the whole Gary Patterson thing because, you know, we, yeah, we got people like that in our, our line too. Yeah. And, and you think you'll have them around forever and right? you, and you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, we were, we were not correct about that. In the words of the Fonz, we were. <laughs> we were <laughs> just yeah that's Fonzarelli for wrong you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah we got what five minutes left there Chipper five minutes yeah I just wanted to uh, go through again uh, some some titles of, of these books that, that we've hinted at or talked about some I have right in front of me, and the, those I miss, you know, Matt is here to, to let us know. Uh, Haunted Rock and Roll, uh, Ghostly Tales of Musical Legends. We have more Haunted Rock and Roll, more Tales of Guitar, Hero, Ghosts, Rockstar, Curses, Musical Mysteries. We talked about Ghosts of Country Music, uh, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters. And uh, Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Uh, Haunted Rails, uh, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits are uh, books along the lines uh, of uh, our friend Matt, author named Matthew L. Swain, S-W-A-Y-N-E. 
um, Matthew L. Swain, and a website I came across, is that still something that... Uh, yeah, I don't think I've updated that, but uh, I should get around to that, but that's mattswain.com. Seems very conceited to have a website named after you, but... Well, but yeah, yeah I mean, if, if that's where we find your work, the, yeah. it's not conceit, it's, you know, that's, uh, that's how we find your work, you know? Okay. So, uh, Matt with two T's, S-W-A-Y-N-E, and, you know, hey... We love outdated websites. I've certainly got one. You can't even get on because it's so outdated. I never dated in the first place. So there you go. So don't feel so bad. And you know, it's nice to see such wonderful humility, though. You know, sure. I mean, you you mentioned early on in the interview. You know, we are all our own worst critic. It's but true. You are awfully tough on yourself, my friend. I will say that. You know, but <laughs> but there's a there's a beauty to that. You know. We don't see that. that enough. We see guys that are, you know, just uh, just the opposite. You know, they're way so full of themselves. Mm -hmm. you, know, it, you know, it it always that inspires that. You know, come on now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah, I so want nice to. Yeah, I want to let the lis listeners know that we don't have a guest for next Tuesday, but uh, Thursday the tenth, Gregory L. Little will be with oh, us. Oh. Coming back. Huh? Yeah, he co-wrote uh, the book The Nice of an Origins uh, with Andrew Collins. Andrew Collins, yeah. So he'll be back. So, yeah, boy, we've been ta taking real good care of these two fellas. Uh, and, uh, hey, Matt, because you like history, I think you'd get a kick out of the uh, book from Gregory L. Little. Dr. I, Gregory L. Little, that's his author name. Yeah, know, I've, I've heard of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. It really is, because they're talking about not only ancient civilizations, but prehistoric civilizations. And, wow. and yeah. have such a fresh take on some of the things that they have found that they are, I mean, alienating lifelong historians and, yeah, you know, and archaeologists that you know, are, are seeing like 30 years of their own work smacked down you know, by this book. So... You know, it's uh, and it's sometimes it's just uh, you have to pay the consequences of being the smartest guy in the room. You know, these right. two guys have done that with with civilizations of ours uh, dating back, you know, 600,000 years. And these Denisovans are almost an uh, savant like uh, species of Neanderthal that we're just really starting to learn about. Hmm. And, you know, uh, and even uh, how uh, some of us in, in latter day and age can see that it's very possible that our, our genes or uh, our mitochondria or our ancestry could indeed uh, date back to these Denisovans who uh, coexisted with the Neanderthal and, and really traces of us uh, as currently as 40,000 years or so yeah. before they kind of disappeared off the face of the map. And also some uh, giant civilizations, some of which could even be tied into these uh, the Archangels. lore yeah. know, of, of the Nephilim, you know, mm -hmm. or the you know, David and Goliath and things of that nature. And a lot of ties in, even from the Neanderthalic uh, past, 
to shamanic uh, understanding of afterlife. You know, for species that lived 400,000 years ago. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Well, of course, pretty- we only ask people to read that after they read the works of Matthew L. Swain. Yes, yeah. Priorities, people. <laughs> Priorities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We got to go, guys. It's almost five till, so we got to give this over to Michael here. All right. Um, the great Michael Veras. Yeah. Don't touch that dial. Late night in the Midlands coming up next. And Supernatural Rum every Tuesday and Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on the great WCETFM at late night in the Midlands.com. Please, oh, please subscribe or donate to this network. If you do a real good job of it, Chip might bring his show Kindness Beyond the Veil back to Mondays. Yay. <laughs> good night, everybody. Listening to WCT.FM Talk Radio like no other. God, I love the station.